Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 194, The Frailty of Women. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find out more and see the entire catalog at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can see the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. Also, holiday vacations and craft lit this year take you to the gorgeousness that is Massachusetts in the fall. Starting in Boston and ending in Rhinebeck, this trip is already a quarter of the way sold before we've even released the brochure officially. So, if you are at all interested, please, please go to the website, click on the link in the upper right-hand corner, That's craftlit.com, and that will take you to the info page. You can call and talk to Diane, make a $200 per person deposit, and that is fully refundable until August 8th. That's when the final payment is due. So if you're not sure, but you want to reserve yourself a space, do that now. Uh, Because things are filling up pretty fast. And uh, Amy Dejan, she is from, you may know her from knit camp uh up with um, meg swanson and schoolhouse press but uh amy's also affiliated with knit circus as well and amy has been teaching in new york at i think it was the vogue knitting thing and i know this not only because i know amy but i know this because one of our listeners took a class from Amy and Meg and said it was the most amazing experience of her life so if you don't know Amy you should know Amy (laughs) that's all I'm saying she is she is spectacular and a riot we just we could not stop laughing when we were at Sock Summit so I'm very excited and um haven't heard back don't know about Sock Summit I got my application in uh almost 12 hours late because of the bloody garage sale on this end so i have no idea if i'll be teaching at sock summit this year or not i hope so but uh but we will see on the what would madame defarge knit end of things everything is cooking along the book is looking gorgeous shannon Oki is a miracle worker and i think that the book goes into pre-sale on charles dickens birthday on february 7th um We want to get the layout just exactly right. Plus, we're working up some really cool goodies that will go along with with the release. And it's, you know, it takes time to do this stuff, especially when you have to be gainfully employed first. (laughs) Teaching takes up time. Isn't that wacky? Who knew? Who knew that teaching two classes back-to-back Mondays and Wednesdays would take up time? It doesn't sound that bad. And of course, you know, all of this while the entire state of Arizona is being eviscerated around us, uh, everything, everything is being cut back. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't turn off all the stoplights and tell everybody just to ride their damn horses. That's where it's heading in Arizona. I think it's a good time to get out and go to Virginia. And funny, that's what we're doing. We are, <laughs> I am in boxing and garage sailing Hades right now. I'm looking at my office. You've probably seen, yeah, I think there are, I was trying to remember if there's actually pictures of there. There are probably pictures out there of me at my desk in front of a wall of books. That wall of books no longer exists. It's either been taken to Bookman's or it's in a garage sale or it's in a box going to Virginia. All of the bookcases are getting sold. We have to sell off about, geez, I don't know, a third, half of our furniture to fit into whatever it is we're going to wind up being able to afford in, uh, in Virginia because it ain't looking good selling the house on this end, which is a shame. It's a really nice house. The, the shui is very fung in the house. 
the women who lived here before us added on a section the entire length of the house. And as a consequence, what happened is it's kind of like a Roman circus in that you could do laps around the entire house that if you go from one room to the next and follow the doors, you will make a complete circuit, which is great for kids because they can, you know, run around, literally around and around in the house. It makes the the layout very user-friendly. So that's nice. And, you know, it's got a big backyard, which is not always true in Arizona. And it's got a tree fort. We actually have a tree. We have a big, old, old, big, big mesquite tree. It's like oak-sized, which, as you might imagine, is shocking in a world of succulents that are not very big. And so the boys have a tree tree fort out there. and, And oh well. But no, no, I will not... I will not give in to melancholia. I will be strong. I will maintain my sense of humor in the face of all attempts by the universe to dash it against the rocks of hopelessness. How's that? Strength of women, interestingly enough, is part of the women in white this week. So I will be getting to that shortly because in my crafting life, as you might well imagine, uh, most things are being boxed. I'm also going to have to sell some things. I'm going to have to sell my weaving loom, which is a baby Mac. I'm going to have to sell the warping board. I'm going to have to, I think, sell the journey wheel, which I'm very sad about because it's a beautiful piece of machinery. I, there's other stuff that, oh, I have tons of fibers. So what I'm doing in the afternoons now every day is I'm doing two or three bats and I'm just taking this random fiber that I've got that I I got in a trade like, I don't know, three or four years ago. And I'm just making multicolor bats. And it's going to be kind of springy, fluffy yarn. It's not going to be particularly silky soft or, or even good for worsted yarn. It is definitely going to be lofty yarn, whatever it winds up being. But uh, I actually think this stuff would be pretty darn good for socks because it's a, it's a sturdy, I can't tell if it's a Romney. It's definitely not Coopworth. It's, it's, a, uh, it's on the soft side of wiry. It's not Wensleydale. I'm not sure what it is at all. It's mystery fiber. And um, it's going to make some really interesting kind of thick, thin, lumpy, bumpy. If I get a chance to spin some up, I will throw a picture up. This is all a long way of saying, if you're interested in buying any of these things, let me know, uh, because otherwise I'm going to put them up in the garage sale. I'll Craigslist them and then have them available to the garage sale. Shipping is going to be a nightmare no matter what, but there it is, you know? What can you do? I I have to unload some of this stuff because there simply will not be room for it. On the unloading things theme. Don't forget that this month, if you donate to Craftlet, you will be put in the drawing for five skeins of really gorgeous worsted weight 100% superwash merino yarn from neighborhoodfiberco.com. This is in colorway grant circle. I put a picture up in last week's show notes that came out way redder. It's It goes from a very nice pink to a really wonderful crimson. It's kind of multicolorish. And uh, five skeins, let's see, they're 98 yards a piece. So almost just shy of 500 yards of, uh, of worsted weight. Four and a half to five stitches per inch on US size six to eight needles. And, um, and again, if you are interested in being put in the drawing for this fabulous yarn that wonderful listener Jill donated to the show, please donate to Craftlet uh, before February 14th. I will have the drawing on Valentine's Day since it's kind of Valentine's day e yarn. And um, to donate, go to craftlet.com and you will see a button that will allow you to donate via PayPal. And to those of you who have already donated, thank you so, so much. Your donations in these difficult times mean the world to me and and literally mean the difference between me being able to afford to pay for the feed and uh, and not. And, uh, and, and so I, I really do thank all of you for, uh, for your generous donations and your support of the show. I'm, I am still designing a hat and mittens for an upcoming book from Voyager Press, and it's coming out beautifully, but it's taking so much time 
not because it's taking so much time, but because there is so little time to devote to said knitting. So the designs are written, the patterns are written. Right now it's just the knitting, which is taking forever. So that is kind of a drag, but and I still have Christmas knitting to do. I have socks for my two brothers-in-law that I, uh, I actually, I can't remember if I told you, I put together a huge bag of sock yarn, sock yarn that I have, and I gave it <laughs> in a bag to the two of them. Their names were on it, on the bag, and it said, okay, pick, you know, pick the yarn you want to have be socks for you. And I'm very excited because I am actually going to use a pattern out of the Madame Defarge book. I am going to use, here I'm going to reveal something to you. I am going to use the Tristan pattern. There is a Tristan pattern and there is an Isolde pattern from Meg from March Hare. And oh my goodness, these patterns are glorious. Just fantastic. The Tristan pattern is so masculine and so attractive. And I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled. And it dawned on me all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, I don't know what kind of pattern I'm going to knit for my brothers-in-law. <gasps> I know what I'll do. I'll use the gorgeous pattern that I've been looking at for the last three months while I've been putting the book together. Yes! So that's very exciting. And as that progresses, I will show you pictures. But first I have to get there and I have to finish this knitting for, for the other book, which I am behind on. But, but, onward, forward. You know, it's the forward momentum thing. I figure as long as I keep moving forward, uh, I'll be okay. Because I know I took, I kind of gave myself a break over the weekend, and that was a bad idea. I really needed to not have done that, because Monday was very hard. I, I had a, a very difficult time kind of getting back into the boxing up my life routine. It's kind of like the, the fly lady thing. You know, you have to have the routines and you don't drop the routines. You always shine your sink at night. You always get your clothes out at night, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, it was a mistake. It was a mistake to take a break. So no more breaks from here on out. It is just relentless box packing. The husband is in Virginia. The husband has been contacted by a number of Craftlet listeners. You are the most wonderful people. Thank you so, so much for taking care of him. He is, um, he's enjoying it. He's actually enjoying the snow. Um, we both, we both like winter. We both like seasons. So this is good. I'm a little less thrilled about the humidity thing, but you know, we'll, we'll cope. That's, that's what we will do. And of course, it means we're going to be that much closer to the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival. Also good. And then, of course, I'll be at Rhinebeck this year after the tour. Oh, I hope you all can go. And I hope if you can't go, we'll have like some kind of meetup or something at Rhinebeck where we can all, you know, get craftlity together-ish-ness. I'd like to bring, you know a bunch of sofas and some hot toddies and just sit around and talk to everybody. But I don't, I don't know if that'll be possible. We'll see what we can do. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe there will be a sofa and a bunch of hot toddies in our future together. Because Rhinebeck gets cold, right? The time I was there, it wasn't all that cold. It was chilly. It was fall-ish. But it wasn't one of the years where it was, you know, blustery and freezing and, and all of that. So maybe I'll bring good weather with me once again. We can hope. So, you may wonder why this episode is called The Frailty of Women? Question mark. And that would have to do with today's sections of The Women in White. Wilkie Collins, I think, and this, you know, this could just be me, but it, I, I don't think my opinion is contradicted directly by any specific literary criticism that I've read. But I choose to believe that Wilkie Collins, kind of like Nathaniel Hawthorne, was a proto-feminist. And I don't mean that he was out, you know, burning corsets or anything like that. But, but that I think, let's see, how do, how do you put this? I think Wilkie Collins and Nathaniel Hawthorne are absolutely products of their time and 
products of understanding people's places in society. But I think they both were well aware of the pain that was inflicted on some women of the time based on very restrictive moral structures. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, you know, uh, it's hard to blame Hester for having a relationship with Dimsdale when her own husband, who she never loved in the first place, has been missing for two years, and she's alone in a very cold and scary new world. It, it's, it's hard to look at someone in that situation and go, wow, you know, skanky behavior. She's, you can empathize with Hester, and then you can be appalled at her treatment the by the um, the two-faced nature of her treatment from from like the good wives the ironically named good wives okay so Wilkie Collins so far you've only met Walter Hartwright but you are about to meet the women no I take that back you're about to meet one woman a very important woman and then you're going to meet her uncle and the 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 thing that is so fascinating about this woman who you're about to meet is her description. I mean, she's fascinating later on for lots of different reasons, but in this particular chapter, listen so closely to the way Hartwright describes her and then listen to what she says about herself and about women. And, and know this, Walter Hartwright and the woman who you are about to meet are, uh, when she gets around to doing narration, they are the two narrators who are the most trustworthy. That doesn't mean that they're absolutely trustworthy. They obviously bring their own biases and their baggage to their narration. But they're the, they're the most trustworthy characters you're going to find. She talks about herself and about women just as you might expect a Victorian woman to talk about herself and about women. But watch the contradiction between what she says and who she is. And this is where you really start to find the genius, I think, in what Wilkie Collins is doing. It's very, very hard in first-person narratives to reveal things about a character that the character themselves might not know. And uh, Don from Crochet Compulsive just turned me on to the series The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. If you haven't read it, oh my goodness, why haven't you? So, so, so good. And, and again, a first-person narrator, a, a first-person narrator who is young enough that she really doesn't understand herself very well, but the people around her understand her. And and it is through their commentary in her first-person narrative that you get a clear picture of who she is. Very similar to what Wilkie Collins is doing here. And interestingly, they're both named Collins. Hmm. Anyway, the I'm going to play the audio for you in a sec. It's just... Uh, I'm withholding one piece of information until after you listen to this chapter. But... Okay, Walter is basically trustworthy. Listen to the commentary uh, made by the female character who you meet about her, but then watch how she actually behaves and what kind of person she actually seems to be. And then also know that at the end of this chapter, you will be introduced to, I think, one of the funniest characters ever written in a Victorian novel. He is, he is a pain in the butt. He is just appalling. He's horrible. He's, he's an absolute nightmare. And you may well have met someone like him, but, but probably not to this degree. The description of him physically is brilliant. And his dialogue is just 
I laughed out loud. And you should know, just, just so that you have something else to look forward to, later in the book, he is given an opportunity to actually have his own narrative, and he is just as hilarious as a first-person narrator as he is as a, as a character in somebody else's narration. So, you're going uh, you're gonna to meet two new people, and you're going to go to a new place, and there's actually a map on the show notes to show you how far away Cumberland is from London, if you've never looked at a map about this before. Uh, it's, it's quite a schlep that Walter Hartwright uh, perpetrates. So, with all of that, I'm going to let you listen to the next section of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, read by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org The First Epoch 5. She has escaped from my asylum. I cannot say with truth that the terrible inference which those words suggested flashed upon me like a new revelation. Some of the strange questions put to me by the woman in white, after my ill-considered promise to leave her free to act as she pleased, had suggested the conclusion either that she was naturally flighty and unsettled, or that some recent shock of terror had disturbed the balance of her faculties. But the idea of absolute insanity, which we all associate with the very name of an asylum, had, I can honestly declare, never occurred to me in connection with her. I had seen nothing in her language or her actions to justify it at the time, and even with the new light thrown on her by the words which the stranger had addressed to the policeman, I could see nothing to justify it now. What had I done? Assisted the victim of the most horrible of all false imprisonments to escape, or cast loose on the wide world of London an unfortunate creature whose actions it was my duty and every man's duty mercifully to control? I turned, sick at heart when the question occurred to me, and when I felt self-reproachfully that it was asked too late. In the disturbed state of my mind it was useless to think of going to bed, when I at last got back to my chambers in Clement's Inn. Before many hours elapsed it would be necessary to start on my journey to Cumberland. I sat down, and tried, first to sketch, then to read. But the woman in white got between me and my pencil, between me and my book. Had the forlorn creature come to any harm? That was my first thought, though I shrank selfishly from confronting it. Other thoughts followed, on which it was less harrowing to dwell. Where had she stopped the cab? What had become of her now? Had she been traced and captured by the men in the chaise? Or was she still capable of controlling her own actions, and were we two following our widely parted roads towards one point in the mysterious future, at which we were to meet once more? It was a relief when the hour came to lock my door, to bid farewell to London pursuits, London pupils, and London friends, and to be in movement again, towards new interests and a new life. Even the bustle and confusion at the railway terminus, so wearisome and bewildering at other times, roused me and did me good. My travelling instructions directed me to go to Carlisle, and then to diverge by a branch railway which ran in the direction of the coast. As a misfortune to begin with, our engine broke down between Lancaster and Carlisle. The delay occasioned by this accident caused me to be too late for the branch train, by which I was to have gone on immediately. I had to wait some hours, and when a later train finally deposited me at the nearest station to Limeridge House, it was past ten, and the night was so dark that I could hardly see my way to the pony chaise which Mr. Fairley had ordered to be waiting for me. The driver was evidently discomposed by the lateness of my arrival. He was in that state of highly respectful sulkiness which is peculiar to English servants. We drove away slowly through the darkness in perfect silence. The roads were bad, and the dense obscurity of the night increased the difficulty of getting over the ground quickly. It was, by my watch, nearly an hour and a half from the time of our leaving the station, before I heard the sound of the sea in the distance and the crunch of our wheels on a smooth gravel drive. We passed one gate before entering the drive, and we passed another before we drew up at the house. I was received by a solemn manservant out of livery was informed that the family had retired for the night, and was then led to a large and lofty room where my supper was awaiting me, in a forlorn manner, at one extremity of a lonesome mahogany wilderness of a dining-table. I was too tired and out of spirits to eat or drink much. 
especially with the solemn servant, waiting on me as elaborately as if a small dinner party had arrived at the house instead of a solitary man. In a quarter of an hour I was ready to be taken up to my bedchamber. The solemn servant conducted me into a prettily furnished room and said, "'Breakfast at nine o'clock, sir,' looked all around him to see that everything was in its proper place, and noiselessly withdrew. "'What should I see in my dreams to-night?' I thought to myself as I put out the candle. "'The woman in white? Or the unknown inhabitants of this Cumberland mansion?' It was a strange sensation to be sleeping in the house, like a friend of the family, and yet not to know one of the inmates, even by sight. 6. When I arose the next morning and drew my blind, the sea opened before me joyously under the broad August sunlight, and the distant coast of Scotland fringed the horizon with its lines of melting blue. The view was such a surprise, and such a change to me, after my weary London experience of brick-and-mortar landscape that I seemed to burst into a new life and a new set of thoughts the moment I looked at it. A confused sensation of having suddenly lost my familiarity with the past, without acquiring any additional clearness of idea in reference to the present or the future, took possession of my mind. Circumstances that were but a few days old faded back in my memory, as if they had happened months and months since. Pesca's quaint announcement of the means by which she had produced me my present employment, the farewell evening I had passed with my mother and sister, even my mysterious adventure on the way home from Hampstead, all had become like events which might have occurred in some former epoch of my existence. Although the woman in white was still in my mind, the image of her seemed to have grown dull and faint already. A little before nine o'clock I descended to the ground floor of the house. The solemn manservant of the night before met me wandering along the passages, and compassionately showed me the way to the breakfast-room. My first glance around me, as the man opened the door, disclosed a well-furnished breakfast-table standing in the middle of a long room with many windows in it. I looked from the table to the window furthest from me, and saw a lady standing at it, with her back turned toward me. The instant my eyes rested on her, I was struck by the rare beauty of her form, and by the unaffected grace of her attitude. Her figure was tall, yet not too tall, comely and well-developed, yet not fat. Her head set on her shoulders with an easy, pliant firmness. Her waist, perfection in the eyes of a man, for it occupied its natural place, it filled out its natural circle. It was visible and delightfully undeformed by stays. She had not heard my entrance into the room, and I allowed myself the luxury of admiring her for a few moments, before I moved one of the chairs near me, as the least embarrassing means of attracting her attention. She turned towards me immediately, the easy elegance of every movement of her limbs and body, as soon as she began to advance from the far end of the room, set me in a flutter of expectation to see her face clearly. She left the window, and I said to myself, "'The lady is dark.' She moved forward a few steps, and I said to myself, The lady is young. She approached nearer, and I said to myself, with a sense of surprise which words fail me to express, The lady is ugly. Never was the old conventional maxim that nature cannot err more flatly contradicted. Never was the fair promise of a lovely figure more strangely and startlingly belied by the face and head that crowned it. The lady's complexion was almost swarthy and dark down on her upper lip was almost a moustache. She had a large, firm, masculine mouth and jaw, prominent, piercing, resolute brown eyes, and thick, coal-black hair, growing unusually low down on her forehead. Her expression, bright, frank, and intelligent, appealed, while she was silent, to be altogether wanting in those feminine attractions of gentleness and pliability, without which the beauty of the handsomest woman alive is beauty incomplete. To see such a face as this, set on shoulders that a sculptor would have longed to model, to be charmed by the modest graces of action through which the symmetrical limbs betrayed their beauty when they moved, and then to be almost repelled by the masculine form and masculine look of the features in which the perfectly shaped figure ended, 
was to feel a sensation oddly akin to the helpless discomfort familiar to us all in sleep, when we recognize yet cannot reconcile the anomalies and contradictions of a dream. Mr. Hartwright, said the lady interrogatively, her dark face lighting up with a smile, and softening and growing womanly the moment she began to speak. We resigned all hope of you last night, and went to bed as usual. Accept my apologies for our apparent want of attention, and allow me to introduce myself as one of your pupils. Shall we shake hands? I suppose we must come to it sooner or later, and why not sooner? These odd words of welcome were spoken in a clear, ringing, pleasant voice. The offered hand, rather large but beautifully formed, was given to me with the easy, unaffected self-reliance of a highly bred woman. We sat down together at the breakfast-table in as cordial and customary a manner as if we had known each other for years, and had met at Limeridge House to talk over old times by previous appointment. "'I hope you come here good-humouredly determined to make the best of your position,' continued the lady. "'You will have to begin this morning by putting up with no other company at breakfast than mine. My sister is in her own room, nursing that essentially feminine malady, a slight headache. And her old governess, Mrs. Vasey, is charitably attending on her with restorative tea. My uncle, Mr. Fairley, never joins us at any of our meals. He is an invalid, and keeps bachelor state in his own apartments. There is no one else in the house but me. Two young ladies have been staying here, but they went away yesterday in despair, and no wonder. All through their visit, in consequence of Mr. Fairley's invalid condition, we produced no such convenience in the house as a flirtable, danceable, small-talkable creature of the male sex. And the consequence was, we did nothing but quarrel, especially at dinner-time. How can you expect four women to dine together alone every day and not quarrel? We are such fools. We can't entertain each other at table. You see, I don't think much of my own sex, Mr. Hartwright. Which will you have, tea or coffee? No woman does think much of her own sex, though few of them confess it as freely as I do. Dear me, you look puzzled. Why, are you wondering what you will have for breakfast, or are you surprised at my careless way of talking? In the first case, I advise you as a friend to have nothing to do with that cold ham at your elbow, and to wait until the omelette comes in. In the second case, I will give you some tea to compose your spirits, and do all a woman can, which is very little, by the by, to hold my tongue. She handed me my cup of tea, laughing gaily. Her light flow of talk and her lively familiarity of manner with a total stranger were accompanied by an unaffected naturalness and an easy inborn confidence in herself and her position, which would have secured her the respect of the most audacious man breathing. While it was impossible to be formal and reserved in her company, it was more than impossible to take the faintest vestige of a liberty with her, even in thought. I felt this instinctively, even while I caught the infection of her own bright gaiety of spirits, even while I did my best to answer her in her own frank, lively way. "'Yes, yes,' she said, when I had suggested the only explanation I could offer to account for my perplexed looks. "'I understand you're such a perfect stranger in the house that you're puzzled by my familiar references to the worthy inhabitants. Natural enough. I ought to have thought of it before.' At any rate, I can set it right now. Suppose I begin with myself, so as to get done with that part of the subject as soon as possible. My name is Marian Halcombe, and I am as inaccurate as women usually are in calling Mr. Fairley my uncle, and Miss Fairley my sister. My mother was twice married, the first time to Mr. Halcombe, my father, the second time to Mr. Fairley, my half-sister's father. Except that we're both orphans, we are in every respect as unlike each other as possible. My father was a poor man, and Miss Fairley's father was a rich man. I have got nothing, and she has a fortune. I am dark and ugly, and she is fair and pretty. Everybody thinks me crabbed and odd, with perfect justice. And everybody thinks her sweet-tempered and charming, with more justice still. In short, she is an angel, and I am— Try some of that marmalade, Mr. Hartwright, and finish the sentence. In the name of female propriety, for yourself— what am I to tell you about Mr. Fairley? Upon my honour, I hardly know. He is sure to send for you after breakfast, and you can study him for yourself. In the meantime, may I inform you, first, that he is the late Mr. Fairley's younger brother, secondly, 
that he is a single man, and thirdly, that he is Miss Fairley's guardian. I won't live without her, and she can't live without me, and that is how I come to be at Limeridge House. My sister and I are honestly fond of each other, which, you will say, is perfectly unaccountable under the circumstances, and I quite agree with you, but so it is. You must please both of us, Mr. Hartwright, or please neither of us. And what is still more trying, you will be thrown entirely upon our society. Mrs. Vesey is an excellent person, who possesses all the cardinal virtues, and counts for nothing. Mr. Fairley is too great an invalid to be a companion for anybody. I don't know what is the matter with him, and the doctors don't know what is the matter with him, and he doesn't know himself what is the matter with him. We all say it's on the nerves, and we none of us know what we mean when we say it. However, I advise you to humour his little peculiarities when you see him today. Admire his collection of coins, prints, and watercolour drawings, and you will win his heart. Upon my word, if you can be contented with a quiet country life, I don't see why you should not get on very well here. From breakfast to lunch, Mr. Fairley's drawings will occupy you. After lunch, Miss Fairley and I shoulder our sketchbooks and go out to misrepresent nature under your directions. Drawing is her favourite whim, mind, not mine. Women can't draw. Their minds are too flighty. Their eyes are too inattentive. No matter. My sister likes it. And so I waste paint and spoil paper for her sake, as composedly as any woman in England. As for the evenings, I think we can help you through them. Miss Fairley plays delightfully. For my own poor part, I don't know one note of music from the other. But I can match you at chess, backgammon, escarte, and with the inevitable female drawbacks, even at billiards as well. What do you think of the programme? Can you reconcile yourself to our quiet, regular life? Or do you mean to be restless and secretly thirst for change and adventure in the humdrum atmosphere of Limeridge House? She had run on thus far, in her graceful, bantering way, with no other interruptions on my part than the unimportant replies which politeness required of me. The turn of the expression, however, in her last question, or rather the one chance word, adventure, lightly as it fell from her lips, recalled my thoughts to my meeting with the woman in white, and urged me to discover the connection which the stranger's own reference to Mrs. Fairley informed me must once have existed between the nameless fugitive from the asylum and the former mistress of Limeridge House. Even if I were the most restless of mankind, I said, I should be in no danger of thirsting after adventures for some time to come. The very night before I arrived at this house, I met with an adventure. And the wonder and excitement of it, I can assure you, Miss Halcombe, will last me for the whole term of my stay in Cumberland, if not for a much longer period. You don't say so, Mr. Hartwright. May I hear it? You have a claim to hear it. The chief person in the adventure was a total stranger to me, but may perhaps be a total stranger to you. But she certainly mentioned the name of the late Mrs. Fairley, in terms of the sincerest gratitude and regard. Mention my mother's name. You interest me indescribably. Pray go on. I at once related the circumstances under which I had met the woman in white, exactly as they had occurred, and I repeated what she had said to me about Mrs. Fairley and Limeridge House, word for word. Miss Halcombe's bright, resolute eyes looked eagerly into mine, from the beginning of the narrative to the end. Her face expressed vivid interest and astonishment, but nothing more. She was evidently as far from knowing any clue to the mystery as I was myself. "'Are you quite sure of those words referring to my mother?' she asked. "'Quite sure,' I replied. "'Whoever she may be, the woman was once at school in the village of Limeridge, was treated with especial kindness by Mrs. Fairley, and, in grateful remembrance of that kindness, feels an affectionate interest in all surviving members of the family. She knew that Mrs. Fairley and her husband were both dead, and spoke of Miss Fairley as if they had known each other when they were children. You said, I think, that she denied belonging to this place. Yes, she told me she came from Hampshire. And you entirely failed to find out her name? Entirely. Very strange. I think it quite justified Mr. Hartwright in giving the poor creature her liberty, 
for she seems to have done nothing in your presence to show herself unfit to enjoy it. But I wish you'd been a little more resolute in finding out her name. We must really clear up this mystery in some way. You'd better not speak of it yet to Mr. Fairley or to my sister. They are both of them, I'm certain, quite as ignorant of who the woman is, or of what her past history in connection with us can be, as I am myself. But they are also, in widely different ways, rather nervous and sensitive, and you'd only fidget one and alarm the other to no purpose. As for myself, I am all aflame with curiosity, and I devote my whole energies to the business of discovery from this moment. When my mother came here after her second marriage, she certainly established the village school just as it exists at the present time. But the old teachers are all dead or gone elsewhere, and no enlightenment is to be hoped for from that quarter. The only other alternative I can think of— At this point we were interrupted by the entrance of a servant, with a message from Mr. Fairley, intimating that he would be glad to see me as soon as I had done breakfast. "'Wait in the hall,' said Miss Holcombe, answering the servant for me in her quick, ready way. "'Mr. Hartwright will come out directly. I was about to say,' she went on, addressing me again, "'that my sister and I have a large collection of my mother's letters, addressed to my father and to hers.' In the absence of any other means of getting information, I'll pass the morning in looking over my mother's correspondence with Mr. Fairley. He was fond of London and was constantly away from his country home, and she was accustomed at such times to write and report to him how things went on at Limeridge. Her letters are full of references to the school in which she took so strong an interest, and I think it more than likely that I may have discovered something when we meet again. The luncheon hour is too, Mr. Hartwright. I shall have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister at that time, and we will occupy the afternoon in driving round the neighbourhood and showing you all our pet points of view. Till two o'clock, then. Farewell. She nodded to me with the lively grace, the delightful refinement of familiarity which characterised all that she did and all that she said, and disappeared by a door at the lower end of the room. As soon as she had left me, I turned my steps towards the hall, followed the servant, on my way for the first time to the presence of Mr. Fairley. 7. My conductor led me upstairs into a passage which took us back to the bedchamber in which I had slept during the past night, and opening the door next to it begged me to look in. I have my master's orders to show you your own sitting-room, sir, said the man, and to inquire if you approve of the situation and the light. I must have been hard to please indeed if I had not approved of the room, and of everything about it. The bow-window looked out on the same lovely view which I had admired in the morning from my bedroom. The furniture was the perfection of luxury and beauty. The table in the centre was bright with gaily bound books, elegant conveniences for writing, and beautiful flowers. The second table near the window was covered with all the necessary materials for mounting watercolour drawings, and had a little easel attached to it, which I could expand or fold up at will. The walls were hung with gaily-tinted chintz, and the floor was spread with Indian matting in maize colour and red. It was the prettiest and most luxurious little sitting-room I had ever seen, and I admired it with the warmest enthusiasm. The servant was far too highly trained to betray the slightest satisfaction. He bowed with icy deference when my terms of eulogy were all exhausted, and silently opened the door for me to go out into the passage again. We turned a corner and entered the long second passage, ascended a short flight of stairs at the end, crossed a small circular upper hall, and stopped in front of a door covered with dark bays. The servant opened this door, and led me a few yards to a second, opened that also, and disclosed two curtains of pale sea-green silk hanging before us, raised one of them noiselessly, softly uttered the words, Mr. Hartwright, and left me. I found myself in a large, lofty room, with a magnificent carved ceiling, and with carpet all over the floor, so thick and soft that it felt like piles of velvet under my feet. One side of the room was occupied by a long bookcase of some rare inlaid wood that was quite new to me. It was not more than six feet high, and the top was adorned with statuettes in marble, ranged at regular distances one from the other. On the opposite side stood two antique cabinets, and between them and above them, hung a picture of the Virgin and Child, protected by glass, and bearing Raphael's name, on the gilt tablet at the bottom of the frame. On my right hand and on my left, 
as I stood inside the door, were chiffonier and little stands in bull and marquetry, loaded with figures in Dresden china, with rare vases, ivory ornaments, and toys and curiosities that sparkled at all points with gold, silver, and precious stones. At the lower end of the room opposite to me, the windows were concealed, and the sunlight was tempered by large blinds of the same pale sea-green colour as the curtains over the door. The light thus produced was deliciously soft, mysterious, and subdued. It fell equally upon all the objects in the room, and it helped to intensify the deep silence and the air of profound seclusion that possessed the place, and it surrounded with an appropriate halo of repose the solitary figure of the master of the house, leaning back, listlessly composed, in a large easy chair with a reading easel fastened on one of its arms, and a little table on the other. If a man's personal appearance, when he is out of his dressing-room, and when he has passed forty, can be accepted as a safe guide to his time of life, which is more than doubtful, Mr. Fairley's age, when I saw him, might have reasonably been computed as over fifty and under sixty years. His beardless face was thin, worn, and transparently pale, but not wrinkled. His nose was high and hooked, his eyes were of a dim greyish blue, large, prominent, and rather red around the rims of the eyelids. His hair was scanty, soft to look at, and of that light sandy colour which is the last to disclose its own changes towards grey. He was dressed in a dark frock-coat, of some substance much thinner than cloth, and in waistcoat and trousers of spotless white. His feet were effeminately small, and were clad in buff-coloured silk stockings, and little womanish bronze-leather slippers. Two rings adorned his white, delicate hands, the value of which even my inexperienced observation detected to be all but priceless. Upon the whole, he had a frail, languidly fretful, over-refined look, something singularly and unpleasantly delicate in its association with a man, and at the same time something which could by no possibility have looked natural and appropriate if it had been transferred to the personal appearance of a woman. My morning's experience with Miss Halcombe had predisposed me to be pleased with everybody in the house, but my sympathies shut themselves up resolutely at the first sight of Mr. Fairley. On approaching nearer to him, I discovered that he was not so entirely without occupation as I had first supposed. Placed amid the other rare and beautiful objects on a large round table near him was a dwarf cabinet in ebony and silver, containing coins of all shapes and sizes, set out in little drawers lined with dark purple velvet. One of these drawers lay on the small table attached to his chair, and near it were some tiny jeweller's brushes, a wash-leather stump, and a little bottle of liquid all waiting to be used in various ways for the removal of any accidental impurities which might be discovered on the coins. His frail white fingers were listlessly toying with something which looked, to my uninstructed eyes, like a dirty pewter medal with ragged edges. When I advanced within a respectful distance of his chair, and stopped to make my bow. "'So glad to possess you at Limeridge, Mr. Hartwright,' he said in a querulous, croaking voice, which combined in anything but an agreeable manner a discordantly high tone with a drowsily languid utterance. "'Pray sit down, and don't trouble yourself to move the chair, please. In the wretched state of my nerves, movement of any kind is exquisitely painful to me. Have you seen your studio? Will it do?' "'I've just come from seeing the room, Mr. Fairley, and I assure you he stopped me in the middle of my sentence by closing his eyes and holding up one of his white hands imploringly. I paused in astonishment, and the croaking voice honoured me with this explanation. Pray excuse me, and could you contrive to speak in a lower key? In the wretched state of my nerves, loud sound of any kind is indescribable torture to me. You will pardon an invalid. I only say to you that the lamentable state of my health obliges me to say to everybody. Yes, and you really like the room? I could wish for nothing prettier and nothing more comfortable, I answered, dropping my voice and beginning to discover already that Mr. Fairley's selfish of affectation and Mr. Fairley's wretched nerves meant one and the same thing. So glad. You will find your position here, Mr. Hartwright, properly recognised. There is none of the horrid English barbarity of feeling about the social position of an artist in this house. Uh, 
so much of my early life has been passed abroad that I have quite cast my insular skin in that respect. I wish I could say the same of the gentry, detestable word, but I suppose I must use it, of the gentry in the neighbourhood. They are sad goths in art, Mr. Hartwright, people, I do assure you, who would have opened their eyes in astonishment if they had seen Charles V pick up Titian's brush for him. Do you mind putting this tray of coins back in the cabinet, and giving me the next one to it? In the wretched state of my nerves, exertion of any kind is unspeakably disagreeable to me. Yes, thank you. As a practical commentary on the liberal social theory which he had just favoured me by illustrating, Mr. Fairley's cool request rather amused me. I put back one drawer and gave him the other, with all possible politeness. He began trifling with the new set of coins and the little brushes immediately, languidly looking at them and admiring them all the time he was speaking to me. A thousand thanks and a thousand excuses. Do you like coins? Yes. So glad we have another taste in common besides our taste for art. Now, about the pecuniary arrangements between us, do tell me, are they satisfactory? Most satisfactory, Mr. Fairley. So glad. And what next? Ah, I remember. Yes. In reference to the consideration which you are good enough to accept for giving me the benefit of your accomplishment in art, my steward will wait on you at the end of the first week to ascertain your wishes. And what next? Curious, is it not? I had a great deal more to say, and I appear to have quite forgotten it. Do you mind touching the bell in that corner? Yes. Thank you. I rang and a new servant noiselessly made his appearance, a foreigner, with a set smile and perfectly brushed hair, a valet every inch of him. "'Louis,' said Mr. Fairley, dreamily dusting the tips of his fingers with one of the tiny brushes for the coins, "'I made some entries in my tablet this morning. Find my tablet. A thousand pardons, Mr. Hartwright, I'm afraid to bore you.' As he wearily closed his eyes again, before I could answer, and as he did most assuredly bore me, I sat silent, and looked up at the Madonna and Child by Raphael. In the meantime, the valet left the room, and returned shortly with a little ivory book. Mr. Fairley, after first relieving himself by a gentle sigh, let the book drop open with one hand, and held up the tiny brush with the other, as a sign to the servant to wait for further orders. Yes, just so, said Mr. Fairley, consulting the tablet. Louis, take down that portfolio. He pointed as he spoke to several portfolios placed near the window on mahogany stands. No, no, not the one with the green back. That contains my Rembrandt etchings, Mr. Hartwright. Do you like etchings? Yes. So glad we have another taste in common. The portfolio with the red back, Louis. Don't drop it. You have no idea of the tortures I should suffer, Mr. Harpright, if Lewis dropped that portfolio. Is it safe on the chair? Do you think it's safe, Mr. Hartwright? Yes, so glad. Will you oblige me by looking at the drawings, if you really think they're quite safe? Louis, go away. What an ass you are. Don't you see me holding the tablet? Do you suppose I want to hold them? Then why not relieve me of the tablet without being told? A thousand pardons, Mr. Hartwright. Servants are such asses, are they not? Do tell me, what do you think of the drawings? They have come from a sale in a shocking state. I thought they smelt of horrid dealers and brokers' fingers when I opened them last. Can you undertake them? Although my nerves were not delicate enough to detect the odour of plebeian fingers, which had offended Mr. Fairley's nostrils, my taste was sufficiently educated to enable me to appreciate the value of the drawings, while I turned them over. They were, for the most part, really fine specimens of English watercolour art, and they had deserved much better treatment at the hands of their former possessor than they appeared to have received. The drawings, I answered, require careful straining and mounting, and in my opinion they are well worth— I beg your pardon, interposed Mr. Fairley. Do you mind my closing my eyes while you speak? Even this light is too much for them. Yes? I was about to say that the drawings are well worth all the time and trouble. Mr. Fairley suddenly opened his eyes again, rolled them with an expression of helpless alarm in the direction of the window. I entreat you to excuse me, Mr. Hartwright, he said in a feeble flutter, but surely I heard some horrid children in the garden. 
my private garden below?' "'I can't say, Mr. Fairley. I heard nothing myself.' "'Oblige me. You have been so very good in honouring my poor nerves. Oblige me by lifting the corner of the blind. Don't let the sun in on me, Mr. Hartwright. Have you got the blind up?' "'Yes. Then will you be so very kind as to look into the garden and make quite sure?' I complied with this new request. The garden was carefully walled in all around. Not a human creature, large or small, appeared in any part of the sacred seclusion. I reported that gratifying fact to Mr. Fairley. A thousand thanks, my fancy, I suppose. There are no children, thank heaven, in the house, but the servants, persons born without nerves, will encourage the children from the village, such brats. Oh, dear me, such brats! Shall I confess it, Mr. Hartwright, I sadly want a reform in the construction of children. Nature's only idea seems to be to make them machines for the production of incessant noise. Surely our delightful Raffaello's conception is infinitely preferable. He pointed to the picture of the Madonna, the upper part of which represented the conventional cherubs of Italian art, celestially provided with sitting accommodation for their chins, on balloons of buff-coloured cloud. "'Quite a model family,' said Mr. Fairley, leering at the cherubs. "'Such nice round faces, such nice soft wings, and nothing else. No dirty little legs to run about on, no noisy little lungs to scream with. How immeasurably superior to the existing construction. "'I will close my eyes again, if you will allow me. And you really can manage the drawings? So glad!' Is there anything else to settle? If there is, I think I have forgotten it. Shall we ring for Louis again? Being by this time quite as anxious on my side as Mr. Fairley evidently was on his to bring the interview to a speedy conclusion, I thought that I would try to render the summoning of the servant unnecessary by offering the requisite suggestion of my own responsibility. The only point, Mr. Fairley, that remains to be discussed, I said, "'refers, I think, to the instruction in sketching "'which I am engaged to communicate to the two young ladies.' "'Ah, just so. "'I wish I had felt strong enough to go into that part of the arrangement, "'but I don't. "'The ladies who profit by your kind services, Mr. Hartwright, "'must settle and decide and so on for themselves. "'My niece is fond of your charming art. "'She knows just enough about it to be conscious of our own sad defects. "'Please take pains with her. Yes. "'Is there anything else? No?' "'We quite understand each other, don't we? "'I have no right to detain you any longer from your delightful pursuit, have I? "'So pleasant to have settled everything. "'Just a sensible relief to have done business. "'Do you mind ringing for Louis to carry the portfolio to your own room?' "'I'll carry it there myself, Mr. Fairley, if you'll allow me. "'Will you really? Are you strong enough? "'How nice to be so strong! "'Are you sure you won't drop it?' "'So glad to possess you at Limeridge, Mr. Hartwright. "'I'm such a sufferer that I hardly dare hope to enjoy much of your society. "'Would you mind taking great pains not to let the doors bang? "'And do not drop the portfolio? "'Thank you. "'Gently with the curtains, please, the slightest noise from them goes through me like a knife. "'Yes. "'Good morning.' "'When the sea-green curtains were closed,' when the two bays' doors were shut behind me. I stopped for a moment in the little circular hall beyond, and drew a long, luxurious breath of relief. It was like coming to the surface of the water after deep diving, to find myself once more on the outside of Mr. Fairley's room. As soon as I was comfortably established for the morning in my pretty little studio, the first resolution at which I arrived was to turn my steps no more in the direction of the apartments occupied by the master of the house except in the very improbable event of his honouring me, with a special invitation to pay him another visit. Having settled this satisfactory plan of future conduct in reference to Mr. Fairley, I soon recovered the serenity of temper, of which my employer's haughty familiarity and impudent politeness had for the moment deprived me. The remaining hours of the morning passed away pleasantly enough, in looking over the drawings, arranging them in sets, trimming their ragged edges, and accomplishing the other necessary preparations, in anticipation of the business of mounting them. I ought, perhaps, to have made more progress than this, but as the luncheon-time drew near, I grew restless and unsettled, and felt unable to fix my attention on work, even though that work was only of the humble manual kind. At two o'clock I descended again to the breakfast-room, a little anxiously. 
Expectations of some interest were connected with my approaching reappearance in that part of the house. My introduction to Miss Fairley was now close at hand, and if Miss Halcombe's search through her mother's letters had produced the result which she anticipated, the time had come for clearing up the mystery of the woman in white. Okay, isn't Mr. Fairley just the best? What a pain, oh my gosh, and his treatment of the servants and what he said, he just cracks me up. And Marion, isn't Marion fascinating? And now we kind of see the mystery start to grow. It's not just this mysterious appearance of the woman in the street out of nowhere wearing all white, but now there's actually a connection that Hartwright has found himself twisted up in the center of. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that Bram Stoker read A Woman in White, loved the book, and then used this same kind of epistolary technique with Dracula. You see some of that same sort of surprise and, oh, what an amazing coincidence kind of build to the Dracula story that you see here. And, you know, someday we will get around to doing Dracula because we, we just have to, right? I mean, it's Dracula. So, uh, I said I was withholding a piece of information. It is a very specific piece of information, and it is this. From what I have read, there was an actual model for Marion Halcombe. Wilkie Collins was friends with George Eliot. Now, you may not know George Eliot. George Eliot was a female writer. Um, uh, she wrote uh, Middlemarch and Mill on the Floss and uh, Daniel Deronda and uh, a bunch of other things. She had quite an interesting and uh, shocking life at the time. And it's interesting because Wilkie Collins had his own kind of long-term affair slash marriage-ishness in his life. She did much the same as a woman. Uh, and eventually I think she... She had to go to uh, Weimar, Germany to, <laughs> to continue that relationship. But, um, you know, the, they weren't, it was very interesting because it seems at least she wasn't like libertine in this. She was not an attractive woman. I have included a picture of her, a photo of her, not a painting. The paintings are really quite generous, but a photograph of her. And you'll see where Marion Halcombe's description comes from. So, so, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like George Eliot was the belle of the ball and off uh, giving away her gifts to various men. Uh, she had these long-term monogamous relationships. They just happened to be with unavailable, uh, an unavailable man initially. And then uh, later she did marry a man who was 20 years younger than her. But uh, I think it was Virginia Woolf who called uh, Middlemarch one of the first novels, Victorian novels written by a grown-up, something to that effect, which again, I think is is fascinating because of the way Wilkie Collins has designed Marion Halcombe to be at once um, uh, uh, plagued by self-doubt, but also doubt of her own sex, you know, of, of women's ability. It's kind of like every time you see a woman do something lame on the road in a car, it's like, oh, uh, did it have to be a woman doing that? Really? Can't we, you know, not advertise <laughs> quite so much? You know, Marion has the same kind of thing going on, um, but so did George Eliot. Uh, Mary Ann Evans is her, her real name. So, uh, she's a fascinating character, and Marion will continue to be a fascinating character. You are going to love her, and um, and and it, I, I think also be. I think I found myself coming to care for Marion as I would a sister, and there are parts of the book where where Collins uh, puts her in situations that that actually um, make me sad, so. You know, you kind of feel like, oh, no, did you have to go there kind of things. So there's a lot of really wonderful stuff coming up, and I cannot wait for us to get there. So until next week, have a great one. Talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. 
and Knit Circus online magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And what would Madame Defarge knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.